0: special edition of EDS at Union Now. This week, our audio comes from an event that took place in June 2020. The Church of the Heavenly Rest and the Episcopal Divinity School have been partners on what's called a racial justice pilgrimage. Joanne Bland is our guest, and she lives and works in Selma, Alabama. She operates Journeys for the Soul, and they specialize in civil rights tours. racial justice pilgrimage has historically taken place on location in Alabama. This year's event was held virtually. This is a recording of that event.
1: Paul and Silas found in jail Had no money for the gold to bail Keep your eyes on the prize Hold on, hold on, hold on, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Paul and Silas began to shout, the doors popped open and they all walked out. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on, hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. The only chains that we can stand are the chains of loving hand in hand. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Well, I got my hand on the freedom plow. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on, hold on.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our plenary session. We're so glad that you are here with us today. If you're joining us on Facebook, welcome. If you're here on Zoom with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, Please take a moment to change your uh, view on your Zoom if you're in Zoom to gallery view so you can see everyone on screen. And we'll invite you to interact when prompted in the chat here on Zoom or in comments on Facebook. We'll be on Facebook interacting with you as well. Thank you so much for joining.
0: Thank you to Lucy, to Lucas Thorpe as well for our production, and to Amory Witchker for her organization of our pilgrimage. Thanks to Janine Otis for the remarkable music that begins our sessions. Welcome back to day two of our virtual pilgrimage for racial justice. We it took so much away from the first day, uh, starting with the discussion with Dean Kelly Brown Douglas of Episcopal Divinity School at Union and grateful to EDS at Union for their partnership, Dean Douglas, Miguel Escobar in the entirety of the pilgrimage and our ongoing work together. As we come back today, I invite you to, to put in the chat just one word uh about how you're feeling after the first day as we start this second day of discussion, listening, prayer, and preparing for action together. Just put in chat, it was so wonderful yesterday to hear where everyone was from, to see people from across the country and across the world. It's good to hear everyone's voices at this moment. Today in our sessions, we are joining together the liberation of movements of the 20th 20th century to the liberation movements of the 21st century and are grateful to have Joanne Bland with us from Selma, Alabama. Dean Douglas is going to introduce uh, Ms. Bland. and then ask some questions. I'll be back at the end to talk a little more about what's happening for our panel and reflection tonight. Welcome back. We're glad you're here and glad we're on this journey together. Dean Douglas.
2: Thank you, Matt. And once again, I thank the Church of the Heavenly Rest uh, for uh, this partnership and for leading us through this virtual pilgrimage. This time last year, we were indeed on an actual pilgrimage. Uh, through uh, Montgomery and Selma, Alabama, where we had the privilege and the honor to be challenged by, inspired by, motivated by, uh, and humbled uh, by the presence and the work of Ms. Joanne Bland. And so in as much as we can't get there this year, uh, we are using Zoom uh, to bring her to all of you, and back with us uh, because this was an experience that really our conversations with Ms. Bland and our tour with Ms. Bland uh, that can't be in so many respects duplicated. And we knew that in so many ways it was the center and core of what we did while we were there on our pilgrimage with uh, members from Heavenly Rest, and the Episcopal Divinity School uh, at Union. And so it is really a privilege to have her with us today. If you go onto the website for Journey for Souls, which is an organization for which she is a guide and a co-owner, you will read these words from her. They are movements for social change are like jigsaw puzzle. Everyone, she says, is a piece. If your piece is missing, the picture is not complete. Why, she asks. because you're the most important piece. Born and raised in Selma, Alabama, Ms. Joanne Bland has participated in some of the most significant civil rights actions, beginning with the Selma voting rights struggle as an 11-year-old, where she was among the freedom fighters who were charged by police and their horses on that fateful Bloody Sunday. Indeed, by 11 years old, Ms. Bland had already been arrested 13 times. What was sparked in her as a child continues today. It's become a fire today. For she is not only personally committed to continuing the struggle, especially for voting rights in this country, at rights which she considers some of the most important rights that we can indeed participate in. But she is also committed to opening pathways, if you will, for others to engage in the struggle for social change. Hence her work as co-owner and guide for the journeys regarding the voting rights struggle as it was centered in Selma. But most importantly, as she conducts those uh, tours and as she works in the journeys for the soul, she strives to empower people to become involved in the struggle for justice in their own communities, wherever they are. She works to inspire people to become a part of the jigsaw puzzle for social change. Now, here's what I know to be true. (laughs) To be in her company is to be inspired, not simply because of the story she tells and she guides you through the path she walks, in the struggle for voting rights in Alabama, but because of the person that Joanne Bland is. I knew when I first entered into her space that she does not suffer fools lightly because social justice to her is not something to be taken lightly. I am honored to have spent time with her. I am blessed that our journeys have crossed on our life journeys. I am inspired by Ms. Joanne Bland as a woman who has given more, tithed more than her 10% of who she is in the fight for all human beings to be regarded as the sacred children of God that we all are. And so it is a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to share this time with you, Ms. Joanne Bland. And I know each of you listening will be blessed and moved to hear her story. So I first want to thank you, Ms. Bland, for taking time out of your day, which I know is a busy day to be here with us in this virtual pilgrimage. Thank you. So I want to really, in so many respects, first of all, before uh, this conversation begins, I also want to say that Uh, I am so glad that we have something else in common and that we are both uh, Luddites to this technology. And so you had to be walked through it by your grandson just as I had to be walked through it uh, by my uh, son. So uh, uh, I am glad that you were able to join us and your grandchild was there to help you get on.
3: She's not gonna appreciate you calling her a grandson. Well, that's why I changed
2: to grandchild because you didn't tell me it was a son. So I said, "Let my granddaughter." To your granddaughter, but you know, Miss Bland, I want you—you are a consummate storyteller—to tell us your story. Here you were, an eleven-year-old, if not younger, being moved to be involved in this struggle for, for, at that time, voting rights and, and more in your own uh, hometown of Selma. But you've stayed in it for such a long time. So can you just tell us, how did you get involved? Why you got involved at uh, 11 years old? And, and what are some of these sort of landmark stories, if you will? Uh, that give us some indication of how you stayed involved and what becomes important in this struggle. Tell us, tell us about your story and your struggle. That's one of the
3: longest introductions I've ever <laughs> had, but it was beautiful. You almost made me cry. At one time, I wondered who you were talking about, though, but um, I'm just I me. Mean, the best thing that I can do, I think, for our listeners is to just start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, as she said, I was born and raised here in Selma. My grandmother, Sylvia Johnson, came to live with us when I was three years old. Hmm. She came because she was, had to bury her only daughter, my mom, who had died in the halls of the White Hospital. When she came to the funeral, she stayed to help rear us along with my dad. Now, my grandmother had lived in Detroit, and we called that the North. She lived up North. And she had some privileges in Detroit that we didn't have in, um, Selma. um, I grew up doing segregation. It wasn't a good period in our history. And grandmother started talking to the women in the community, telling them about some of the things that, um, some of the freedoms that she shared in Detroit. They introduced her to a lady named Amelia Boynton. Mrs. Boynton and her husband, Sam, were our farm extension agents and they were our insurance agents. They introduced her to Grandma, but the most important thing is Mrs. Boynton and Mr. Boynton had formed an organization in the early 1930s called the Dallas County Voters League. And they set about trying to register African-Americans to vote in Dallas County, which still missed the county seat. Grandmother started going to the meetings and she would take us.
1: Boring.
3: <laughs> we had to sit at the feet of those history makers while they strategized on how they was going to get this thing called freedom. Now, personally, I thought they were the dumbest old people in America, because I already knew that Abraham Lincoln freed slaves. Hmm. It was obvious that these old people didn't know. I sat there smug in my belief that I was the smartest person in that room, because when, even when I would ask, no one could explain it to me where I could understand it. How old were you One about day, then? Excuse me?
2: How old were you around then?
3: Around eight.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, one day we were downtown um, on Broad Street, which is, um, at that time, all our retail stores were on Broad Street. There was a drugstore, and it's still there today, Carter's Drugstore, that had a lunch counter. And I'd see the white kids sitting there spinning around those, those stools, licking those ice cream. And I wanted to do that, but my grandmother said I couldn't. Hmm. She said, Colored children, that's what we were called in, colored. Mm-hmm. Colored children can't sit at the counter. That's the law. It didn't stop me from wanting to sit at that counter. Every time I passed by, I'd be peeping in that window, watching those white kids, wishing it was me. Hmm. Well, this particular day, my grandmother was talking to one of her friends in front of the store. I was doing what I always do, peep in that window, watching those white kids, wishing it was me. But this particular day, my grandmother noticed that I was looking in the window. And she leaned over my shoulder, and she pointed to the counter through the window, and she said, when we get our freedom, hmm. you can do that too. I became a freedom fighter that day. Wow. I understood instantly that the freedom that grandma and her old friends were talking about was the good freedom you know, the one that would let me sit at that counter. I started going down to First Baptist Church with my older sisters to the meetings of SNCC. They tried to teach me the principles of nonviolence. I flunked miserably. (laughs) I I grew up in the hood. You hit me, I was going to hit you back. And that just didn't sit right with me. I'd act so ugly in that church, my sisters would put me out as soon as a nonviolence training started. They won with it always every day lean over to me and say you can go outside now and you stay in the churchyard." and i get up and i go because i didn't want any part of that you yell at me i am gonna yell at you back i didn't care but i like to march it when they come Mm. out the church to go on the youth march i'd hop in that line like i've been training all day and we march up to our courthouse sometimes Mm. they see us coming they lock the doors Mm. Um, but it was okay we would kneel on the steps And someone would say a prayer to the creator asking him to lift the hearts of those evil men so our parents could vote for us until we could vote for ourselves. Hmm. But that got old quickly to the establishment. They started rolling yellow school buses up in front of the courthouse and loading us up on those buses and taking us to jail. Hmm. They would put us in cells that was supposed to hold one to two people. I've never been in a cell that didn't have 20 before the 40 people all jammed up in this little space. If you were lucky or unlucky enough to get the bed, you didn't sit there long. The mattress was gone. It was just that metal frame. And it had this little lip right in front to keep the mattress from sliding off. That didn't feel good on the back of your thighs. The toilet, right there, just right there. No mm-hmm. privacy. That many people jammed up in a space that small, you didn't want to be anywhere near a toilet. Trust me on that one. Our food, dry beans. For mm-hmm. those of you who cook beans, have seen them being cooked. Dry beans, you know you can't just throw them in the pot. You gotta pick out the stuff you can't eat. The rocks, the dirt, the grass, the insects. No one did that for us. I think they took pride in bringing you a plate with a huge rock sitting up on it. Wow. Those things were done to break our spirits, but we were as low as we could go. They would let us out. We'd go home, take a bath, and I'd find out I couldn't sit at, the still could not sit at that counter, we'd be right back up in their face. Sometimes going back to jail the same day. By the time I was 11, I had been arrested 13 times, and I was not the youngest. If you were there, you were arrested. In fact, the first time I was arrested was with my grandmother. I was only eight years old, and I then was not the youngest. In December of 1964, a letter was written by Dr. Frederick Douglas Reese, who at that time was the president of the Dallas County of to a man named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., inviting him to speak at a program on January the 1st of 1965. Dr. King already knew of the work that the league had been doing for over 37 odd years toward voter registration. He knew of the work that SNCC who came to Selma in 1963 had been doing toward voter registration. Dr. King chose Selma hmm. as the headquarters for the battle for voting rights in these United States for all citizens. It really heated up then. Dr. King brought in his lieutenants and he stationed them in counties all around us. He sent this preacher, named James Orange, Reverend James Orange, to Perry County. Marion is the county seat. In Marion, Reverend Orange managed to organize students. It was easy to organize the students after all their parents worked for the same people who were trying to keep us from getting the right vote. They marched on that courthouse and were arrested, all of them, including Reverend Orange. Reverend Orange himself told me about three o'clock that day a state trooper came in the area where he was housed with a rope. On the end of that rope was tied a noose. Hmm. Reverend Orange said that that trooper threw it over the top of his cell, so that noose hung down. He said he had to sit there in that small space and look at that noose, knowing it may be his last day on earth. That evening, they let the children out. They kept Reverend Orange. There was a mass meeting being held at a church approximately two blocks from the jail. The children ran into the meeting and disrupted this meeting. They said, you have to do something. You have to do something now, they're gonna kill him. The people in the church decided to walk down to that jail and walk around it all night long in hopes that their mere presence would save this man's life. When they left the church, they were attacked by law enforcement officers. A young man named Jimmy Jackson emerged from the church just in time to see a state trooper about to hit his grandfather. Jimmy ran over and pleaded with this trooper, but Jimmy's mom saw them about to hit her dad too. Hmm. And she ran over. As she approached, that trooper drew back that Billy Club to hit her. And Jimmy did what I would do. He blocked it. That trooper shot him. Jimmy died eight days later. It was then that the leaders decided to walk from Selma to Montgomery to protest this young man's sister's death and demand the right to vote from our then governor, George Wallace. On March 7th, we gathered on the playground of George Washington Carver Homes and led by John Lewis and Jose Williams, walked down Selma Avenue to Broad Street, turned left and walked down broad and over that Edna pedestal bridge the metal wall of policemen when that line stopped john lewis asked permission to pass the policeman said there would be no march between selma and montgomery you have two minutes to disperse and go back to your home or your church in less than a minute they attacked. now i had never experienced violence um, marching for me was fun i liked the spirit of the movement being with my friends not going to school i liked all of that When I crossed that bridge and I could see across, I saw those policemen lined all the way across Highway 80, right up under the traffic light. I knew we were not going to Montgomery. As I descended further, I saw that the service roads were filled with policemen. The sheriff's posse, sitting on some, sitting on horses, some sitting on cars, some just standing on both sides. And that which further affirmed, we were not going to Montgomery that day. I was too far back in the line to hear or see what was happening. I didn't need to. I was a warrior. I knew the procedure. I knew when John and Hosea got to that line of policemen, one of them would ask permission to pass. It would be denied. John and Jose would go down on their knees and we would follow suit. One of them would say a prayer. And after prayer, they'd stand up and go back to where we started from. We'd plan a new strategy or just regroup and come right back. I'm standing there waiting for the front to go down, when suddenly I hear gunshots and screams. I think they're killing the people down front. Before we could turn the run, they came in from both sides, the front and the back, and they were just beating people. Oh, young, black, white, male, female, it didn't matter. People lay everywhere bleeding, not moving, as if they were dead and you couldn't stop to help them and you'd be beaten too. Oh, the gunshots I heard. I don't know if anyone was shooting bullets on that bridge that day. Turned out to be the tear gas canisters being shot into the crowd. Tear gas burns your eyes, gets in your lungs. You can't breathe, you can't see panic. Oftentimes you run right back to the same people you're running from. It seemed like it lasted an eternity. If you could outrun those men on foot, you could not run the ones on horses. The poor horses were afraid. They were rearing and kicking. People were being trampled. Bones were being broken. The last thing that I remember on that bridge that day, seeing this horse and this lady. I don't know what happened. Did the man on the horse hit her and she fell? Did the horse just run over her? I don't know. I do know. As I sit here 55 years later, I can still hear the sound her head made. When it hit that pavement. The next thing I remember is being on the city side of the bridge in the back of a car. My head was in my sister Linda's lap and Linda was crying. Mm. When I became fully awake, I realized it was falling on my face were not my sister's tears. It was her blood. Mm. My 14-year-old sister had been beaten on that bridge and had wounds in her head that required 35 stitches, seven over her right eye, and 28 in the back of her head. She grabbed my hand, and we ran home.
1: That following Tuesday, when Dr. King came back, he organized us again.
3: We followed Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy across that bridge again, and I held that same sister's hand Hmm. as we crested the bridge that I could see across. I'm not ashamed to tell any of you that I, I, I didn't want any more freedom. I saw the same scene I had seen that Sunday. I tried to go back, but my sisters wouldn't let me. They held my hand and kept trying to coax me across. One of them that said, come on, they're not gonna beat Dr. King. I went, but I was scared. This time, Dr. King asked permission to pass. The policeman told him the same thing. There would be no march between Selma and Montgomery, but this time the front went down.
1: Dr. King asked permission to pass. But this time, the front went down.
3: The the Abernathy said a prayer. And after prayer, he and Dr. King led us back to Brown Chapel AME Church, where Dr. King held the mass meeting. At that mass meeting, he told us he had applied for a court order that would give us the legal right to walk from Selma to Montgomery if we so wanted to. On January, I'm sorry, on March 17th, a judge in Montgomery signed that order, Frank Johnson. And I understand he said it. he signed it not because he believed in what those Negroes were doing, but it was the law. You on March 21st, we left Brown Chapel one more time. Went over that Edmund Pettus Bridge, and those same policemen who beat us up on the 7th had to protect us all the way from Selma to Montgomery. Five days of walking it took to get to their capital. In just a day or two shy of six months, the Voting Rights Act was signed, and it became the most significant legislative, I can even say it, legislation of that century. And it's been under attack ever since. That voting thing must be awfully important. Yeah. Because if it wasn't, they wouldn't be trying to take
2: it. Any questions? Yes, indeed. Wow. First, I I just need to catch my breath, Uh, because in so many ways, you take me back. And um, it's a powerful witness, and also witness to what difference one person can make. Several questions. I want to begin here, Ms. Bland. Just a couple days ago, we've seen a video here in my state, where I now reside, in Baltimore of a young Black boy, nine years old, with his mother. I'm sure you've seen it being turned away from a restaurant because he was told he was not dressed appropriately when the little white boy was dressed the same way that he was dressed. And the little white boy got to eat in the restaurant. And I kept looking, I felt the mother and I heard her tears this morning and kept looking at the little boy and thinking, what must he be thinking? How must he be Feeling, I, and, and I hear you talk about, as an eight-year-old, being, looking and seeing little white kids being able to sit at the counter. And we all have these stories. And you were inspired to fight for that freedom to sit at the counter. And here, more than 50 years later, we still see little Black children not being that. allowed. What, 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 what goes through your mind when you see yes. that?
3: You know, um, I've seen a lot in these uh, few years that I've been on this earth. And I've had time, particularly with this pandemic, to, to reflect on, on our lives here and our lives as African American. And, and, you know, daily we see stuff like you just um, talked about. I, uh, it took me back to that counter when I saw it. It took me back. I know how that child felt. You know, um, it, it, it makes you start to wonder if the skin you're in is good. That's Man. no way for a child of people. God didn't make any trash. He made us human. And as we travel, as we start to settle around this country, there were certain things we didn't need, so we evolved. Um, but we're the same people. We're the same, and nobody realized that. We're the same people. And it's been this systematic effort to um, erase that. All of you came from a woman in Africa <laughs> and from black people. So you should, we should be revered, not persecuted, um, because we are you. And nobody, and you don't realize that because of the way that um, the United States has managed to um, prioritize. I think that's a good word for it the issue of color,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: and we're all human beings, and I want the same thing for my child. We go to a restaurant, I want my child to be able to, to sit as well as you want your child to sit. And the only
1: way, and you can't, the only way you can really understand is put yourself in my shoes, and That's you right. can't do
3: That's that. Right. You can't do that, so we must have these conversations. You must have these conversations, because it's confusing too. I understand that. I remember this little girl asking me what I like to be called. She said African American, Black. Da da da. Well, I was in my Barack Obama stage. I'm still there. So I became African American because he was African American, yep, yep, too yep. African American, right? But uh, I'm not offended if you call me Black. I'm proud of this color. With this color, I bring unique gifts. With the other colors in the rainbow of humanity. You bring unique gifts, and we need to put these gifts together and realize that we're the same people. My uh, skin tone, of my uh, big nose, or my beautiful lips doesn't mean I'm. I'm I want to hurt you. I don't want any more than you want. A fair and just society, for oh,
2: No, so so well said, and and. I agree, I like the way you talk about the way in which this country has prioritized skin color and hence privileging uh, skin color and the ability, if only we could begin to really, as you say, see others as we see ourselves. And uh, like you, as I looked at that child, I remember uh, having those experiences as a child that led me to ask my dad, why did white people hate us so? Because you, right. know, you think something must be wrong. Uh, what did I what, do? Yeah, what did I do? But you know, and so I look at that little boy, and I hope that he gets so inspired. I loved watching his mother stand up for him and right. uh, get so inspired as you were. So it, it, it leads me to this. So there you're seeing that, and, take it, and it takes you back to, to your childhood and that experience standing in front of a, a window and watching white kids eat ice cream that you couldn't eat. And then you talk to us about Jimmy Lee Jackson. Someone in those days, we didn't have videos, right? We didn't have right. cell phones. So right. Jimmy Lee Jackson's name, but for persons like yourself, Jimmy Lee Jackson's name would have been erased from history because he was just another Black life, another Black kid killed. It wasn't until Viola uh the Rezo was killed that we began to talk about those deaths in Selma. Jimmy Lee Jackson was just wiped off the front page. what But today we've got videos, right? So we right, know right. about Auburn Aubrey. We know about George Floyd. We know about Brianna Taylor, Trayvon, and others. So what are you thinking <laughs> as you see the police doing the same things over and over? Oh, I'm glad you
3: said that. <laughs>
2: The same thing. The same um, there thing. There was
3: no surprise. This has been happening since we were brought here. Um, so we're not, um, we're not surprised at that. And that. But we are surprised that when you could see it, when this modern technology came mm-hmm. and you could record it, that still nothing happened. Still nothing. You watch a man running away from a man. The man's in no danger and you shoot him. Mm -hmm. in the
1: back Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. in the back you're in no danger but you said oh he pointed a um taser at him oh yeah that was real life threatening (laughs) real life threatening i understand now why he shot him that's crazy as hell oh excuse me (laughs) okay that's just insane when the when we take that's that's a systematic effort i was talking about that um Gives you that privilege to, to do things like that. All white people, no matter how poor they are, were born with privilege. Now, what I make friends with white folks, because I need you to help me with that privilege, you know, that I don't have, that I still don't have all these years. But every right that people of color have, please understand that there had to be a fight had to be a fight yet you call us citizens you listen to um the propaganda the news um they highlight the bad things and never rarely do you see the good things so that just doesn't matter i need white people now's the time for you to get up and use that privilege to help make this world right and i just got through ta- having a talk about i normally don't talk um Christianity and religion because I'm sometimes jaded with these preachers. In the 60s, the church was the center of all change in our communities. It was our meeting place where the minister had a captive audience at least once a week where we could communicate and and try to solve problems. We don't have that um, as a whole anymore. I don't know how we lost that. We integrated into a world that didn't want us and had no place for us, yet we let those things go. And uh, some people will say, well, you had the same opportunities I had. No, I didn't. Right. No, I didn't. My dad could work at the same job, a white person's job uh, with the white person, doing the same job, and the white man got paid more than he did in the sixties, my grandmother worked in the homes of the oppressors because there were no jobs for women for women and she only got a dollar a day one dollar a day now i don't understand how people could say we had a fair chance how how could we have a fair chance that this is happening you um laws were made to make sure i had a neighborhood you know, redlining. I go to the bank, my credit score eight hundred, you and yours is six hundred. You still get a better real interest rate than me if I get the loan. Yep. If yep. I get the loan. I need those things to stop. I need you to realize that I walk I walk in this world too. I live in this world. I want the same things you got. Nobody's trying to be more than you. I think there's a fear out there, someone uh, said that if we, if we gain power, that we would treat white people the same way they treated us. Trust me, white people, that is not in us. Well, that is just not in We're the most forgiving people um, <laughs> on this planet. You know, even when we were um, slaves, you know, they, it's going to get better on the other side and that, oh, Massa, the devil got, we got to pray for him.
2: Okay? So me, I'm sorry. So no, go you ahead. You said that. So tell me this. We've got a couple of things I to saying. First, you're right. There was a black uh, female comedian who said, uh, you all ought to be glad. We're only asking for equality and not revenge. But, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, here you God. are. You're still living in Selma. And I remember when we were down there with you, right, we passed by, I think it was a car, old car dealership or a gas station or something. And you said that a gentleman who, uh, quote unquote, gentleman uh, who sort of participated on the opposite side of the struggle used to wave sort of mockingly at the buses uh, that would go by as you would take them on tours. What struck me and continues to strike me today is just as you and I are still living and you participated in those struggles down south as a child, the people who fought against you and children who fought against you are still living down there. And you, they're your neighbors and, and you know who they are, right? Uh, the, so how how do you continue when you talk about forgiveness and not revenge? Just what's it like as you continue? And there's still Confederate flags flying all around uh, down there in Selma, Alabama. I remember I couldn't wait to get out of there because those Confederate flags uh, th- every time I saw one, I felt that my life was in danger. How do you do it without becoming jaundiced and indeed becoming hateful when you are walking the streets with the same people who would have you beaten on that Ed- Edmund Pettus Bridge?
3: I love God.
2: Mm.
3: I love God, and he loves me. Um, so that was my hometown, and... A lot is wrong here. A lot. We've changed some things. We've come a long, long way. The problem is we had so far to go, so we're not there. But I think that as the generations have passed, it's become better. Um, but now remember those same stories that the lives of the parents, because you wake up one morning and you are your parents, you know? <laughs> so some of that
1: craziness came with it. But I think now with um, education um, and
3: the integration, that we become to know each other a little bit better. But when it comes to an uh, issue of, power, of shifting of power, then we have problems, because then it becomes down racial lines. And we have to fight. Assembly is predominantly African-American. We have about 18,000 people. The people who, the the, the man that you were talking about was one of the murderers of James Reed, hmm. um, a Unitarian minister that came to help and marched on turnaround Tuesday. They attacked him and he died two days later. He was the first white death, And um, that brought attention first, before Viola uh, Louzo, but and then Mrs. Auzo died and all the heck broke loose then because now you're killing women yeah, white, white women at white that. Woman. That's a problem, but... Um,
2: still haven't heard about Jimmy Lee Jackson, but yeah.
3: <laughs> right. It's, it's easy for me to, to live here. It's my home. I love it. And if I don't try to change it, who will?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, uh, we still have uh, white people who have that... Um, Confederate um, ideology, and um, I enjoy talking to them. I really do. We're crazy as heck, but that's okay. That, that's their opinion. That I'm going to tell them mine. Let me tell you this quick story. When we elected yeah. our first African American mayor, uh, organization surfaced here called the Friends of Forest. and this may lead you into Edmund Phipps.
2: Yeah, because I want to hear the about
3: friend of, the Friends of Forest. and they erected a, a monument to a Confederate general named Nathan Bedford Forrest. That's right. Okay. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a a Confederate general, a horrible Confederate general. And uh, he wouldn't take African Americans, people who look like me and you, prison. They just, he just wouldn't do it. He um, killed them because he said he couldn't afford to feed them. And there's this um, battle in Fort Pillow, Tennessee, where he allegedly, Killed the whole black battalion, women and children, even after they surrendered. Okay. And he was the worst kind of slave um owner that could be. He was a slave breeder. He bred people like they were animals and sold them. And they put up this monument. All heck broke loose itself. If you had come here then. You would have thought you were back there in the 60s. We were marching, going to jail, because we were not having
2: Now, when was this?
3: This was in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. We had just elected our first Mm African-American mayor, okay? And don't you think, uh, look at the time, right, that they put up this. So it gave me pause. I started to research some of these other monuments that had been put up in town. They were only put up when there was some sort of unrest between That's the right. races. That's right. As a reminder, as a, um, to strike fear in you. That's right. Because when I looked at that monument, it said to me, literally, you may have a Negro mayor, but we are still here. That's okay? right. Well, okay. So, well, one yeah. of the white women on the city council had to vote with the blacks that were then on the city council to give them a majority to move the monument our mayor picked it up and took it to a cemetery that the city still owns but the white cemetery the oldest white cemetery is still alive and it stayed there for 10 years and someone decided to take the bus off it the head off i hope it's in the river looking up but um it wasn't me either i don't do (laughs) graveyards at night but (laughs) They, put it, um, they decided that it wasn't safe where it was, friends of ours. So they wanted to move it over by the 5th on one of the busiest streets in Selma and elevate it and light it hmm. so that you could see it day and night. Well, you know, all had broke loose again. Uh, I'm glad to say it's still sitting in the, sem- in the center of that cemetery. And I don't mind it being there. So none of my people are buried out there. I don't have to go out there. I use it sometimes for young people to show them that we still have a stroke. Okay? But not, um, and that was a victory. Yep. You know, it's not the history that um, annoys me, it's the interpretation, the way it's been ter- interpreted. Those people were traitors. Why are we glorifying them? all the only criminals in the world that we glorify. That's a problem. That's well, a real problem.
2: Again, you know, I'm glad, and it will take me to Edmund Pettus. First of all, thank you. Wilson, well, we have time for a couple more quick, quick questions. But I'm glad that you've pointed out that most of these Confederate uh, monuments were put up during times. To indeed, uh, when there was any modicum of black protest or black progress, to again reclaim the narrative uh, of, of of white dominance, of white power, etc. Uh, and we know that many of them went up went up during this period in the 50s. Lost calls, uh, ideology, and so uh, again, I thank you for that. And it brings me quickly to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And at this time when Confederate monuments are rightly coming down, should have been coming down long ago. Edmund Pettus, it's ironic that that bridge has now become a symbol of a civil rights struggle when Edmund Pettus was a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, was a Confederate uh, general, uh, thought, didn't think any more about black people than did uh, Nathan Bedford. Uh, what's the, tell me about that irony. Uh, Every time you cross the dag on Edmund Pettus Bridge, this man couldn't stand black people.
3: I know he must be rolling in his grave when you run across it. But um, up until yesterday, I was adamant about not renaming the bridge. There's a, a, a nationwide effort of petitions is out talking about renaming the bridge. And I said, no because that bridge has been a symbol Mm -hmm. for um, the fight for freedom and an accomplishment. We won that battle, and we won it on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So I was adamant about that. And one of the student leaders from from, um, when I was a child, a local student leader that we followed because he was so good looking, his name was Charles. um, His name is Charles Maldon. He called me last night and we were having a discussion about Both of us are adamant about naming it John Lewis. We love John Lewis. John John has been my friend since I was a kid, Um, and he said he doesn't want that. But I don't think I think that does a disservice to the people in Selma if they rename it John Lewis, because John may have become the most famous person on that bridge, but he wasn't there alone. He had approximately 600 people there, including me. No, I don't want to name Joanne Bland either. Mm-hmm. I think if you rename it, it needs to reflect that. It also needs a huge plaque explaining who Epman Petals was and why we renamed it. Now, I'm still on the fence. Don't get me wrong. I'm still on the fence of whether to change it or not because um, I guess I'm too close to the, the effort. But, you know, how can I tell a child that's out there trying to change this world, that the home of the voting rights struggle, that when you enter our town, you have to come over a bridge that's named after this racist. So I'm still on the fence. But those are some of my thoughts about that, OK? Well, no,
2: thank you. And there's a certain irony, it seems to me, and perhaps a poetic justice uh, that the, uh, that which was a gateway into cotton country and all that, that bridge. Right. uh, And was one of the main uh, uh, sort of highways, if you will, for uh, uh, the slave industry. And Edmund Pettus, who was such a Confederate, uh, quote unquote, hero and a Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux, Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, that on that bridge, Black people reclaimed a part of their history and reclaimed their freedom. So there's there's an irony. So I, I feel you for that. I got one last question. And I'll turn it back over to Reverend Hyde. But I can't let you go without this. So in all that you have said uh, uh, to us and you know what what do you want to leave us with as we go through these times when we even find people who refuse to say Black Lives Matter and say all lives matter. I want to ask you what you thought about that, but what do you, what do you, what do you say? What, what do you want to leave us with?
3: <laughs> Please know all lives don't matter. And when you say that, you, um, <laughs> you're discounting it. You're looping us together and you're saying there's not a problem. There is a problem. It's like my house is on fire and yours down the street, the fire truck comes. You say, wet my house down so it doesn't get wet (laughs) first before you get to me. When you say Black Lives Matter, you're putting emphasis on it and and we understand it. And, And it's a lie anyway when you say all lives matter. And as a Christian or whatever your religion is, they teach you not to lie. I know your mama told you that. You don't lie. That's right. So when you say all lives matter, you're lying and you know it. So don't say it. Yeah, I'm not saying that your life don't matter. I just think you need to know that I don't have the same privileges in life as you do. And until we all do, it's, it's a lie every time you say all lives matter. And don't teach your children that, please. Don't teach your children that you're getting away from the problem. Black lives matter it means I'm calling attention to it. You're calling attention to it. So don't do it. Now, I do want to say this, that my story is from 1965 and prior, and we're still struggling for the same rights there. We're still dying in the streets that's in alarming numbers. We have all kinds of issues that are related to the way that we were treated, that, Uh, Even the crime in our community, all of that comes from the way we were treated and the way um, the things that were done to us were processed. And we're we're doing the undoing, yeah. But when you just see me as a black person and you think about all those things that were said about me that you don't know anything about me, but you categorize me with that. I'm hurt, and I'm hurting. My children are hurting. I need you to help me. I need us to get together as people. You know who I think I, uh, is gonna change this world?
1: Hmm.
3: Mothers and children.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Mothers and children. That'd you have a responsibility me. as a human being to make sure this world is a better place for everybody. And that's why I do the things I do. I tell my story over and over, because I want you to know where we've been so you can take us where we need to be. And that makes sure you know that your piece in the process is the
2: most important piece. Thank wow. you. What a place to start, stop, and start for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Joanne Bland, for your time with us, for sharing your story, your wisdom. But most of all, I so deeply thank you for your commitment and your witness. Thank
0: Thank you. you. Thank you. So I wanna join Dean Douglas's thank you, Ms. Bland. Thanks for being with us today. And, And Dean Douglas, thank you for being a conversation partner in this story. And thanks to all of you for joining and listening in today. Talk about the rest of our day together. First at four o'clock or any time that you can find time, take time today for quiet reflection. We've offered resources for individual reflection. You can do that at four or any time this afternoon or this evening. Come back at six thirty and we have a panel on state violence and civil disobedience, which joins together Ms Blan's witness and her story to the stories of those who are protesting today. Dean Douglas will be part of that panel with Gail Fisher Stewart, a uh, Episcopal priest and a former police officer from the Diocese of Washington, D.C. Uh, Pierre-André Duver, who is Rector of St. Luke's Church in the East Bronx, the largest congregation in the Diocese of New York. And Winnie Varghese, who is a global activist and this wonderful speaker and voice who is at Trinity Church Wall Street. Come back for that at 6.30. And at 7.30, we'll have the opportunity again today for small group reflection and to close our day with conflict. Thanks for joining. Dean Douglas, Ms. Bland, thank you very much. Thank you. For exploring the conversation today. And we'll see you later today. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Bye you. bye. Bye -bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.